Hello and welcome along to Wilson and Windsor's Libertadores podcast. A podcast, of course, exclusively dedicated to the greatest, grandest, best competition in South American club football, the Copa Libertadores. And this year, well, it was a pretty bizarre tournament. Beautiful, but bizarre in many senses. And it's come to its conclusion. Ollie Wilson with Palmeiras beating Santos in an all-Brazilian final at the Maracanã in Rio with uh, a rather drab 90 minutes being concluded with a with a last minute goal which which provided plenty of drama on the pod this week Mr Wilson you're kind of smirking at me as if you're uh, that was fair to describe the final like that no on the pod this week we um we discussed all things Libertadores we went top to tail of the tournament we scrolled back to uh, you know, to kind of assess how it all started and how it all ended. We had our players of the tournament. Me and Ollie went through our individual best 11s of the tournament. That was entertaining our favourite goals. There was a nod ahead to the Club World Cup and the 2021 tournament. But ultimately, Palmeiras are the Copa Libertadores champions, Ollie. I was watching the game at work for various reasons. And I watched the whole thing when I could have gone home. And it wasn't the most comfortable chair to be in and everything. And oh, Ollie! No, sorry, was your chair uncomfortable while you were and, watching football? No, but the point—the point is, a lot of people were asking, "Oh, what are you watching?" I was like, "Oh, it's the Copa Libertadores final." And so a few people kind of stood around and watched, and it was like, "God, why do you watch this football? Why do you care? This is awful." And it was hard to defend. And then I stayed watching it, and about ninety-eight—no, just before everything unfolded, basically, somebody who I'd seen around the office a few times comes up introduce themselves we're having a chat about it all i explained he should listen to the wilson and windsor libertadores podcast for all of the information on the final and the preview to it and then everything kicks off and he says i don't know why you were saying that this is a terrible spectacle i've just watched four minutes of it and it's fascinating this is absolutely brilliant i was like well yeah if you turn up for the best bit of 115 minutes of football of course it's going to be great for yourself but me who slogged all the way through it at least got a good payout at the end but my goodness it was a slog well, that's it. If you just flick on, Ollie, you see a man in a, a, a T-shirt with the Virgin Mary and a gold chain, and then you cut away to a headed goal to, to lift the biggest tournament in the continent all in the space of about 60 seconds. It's hugely entertaining. Uh, <laughs> yeah, look, ladies and gentlemen, I, I, Ollie, I felt this was a really good, uh, a good pod, which gave me a bit of closure, actually. Going through our teams of the season in particular, I enjoyed. Yeah, it's, it's nice to wrap it all up with a nice bow on it. And I think... Both the starting 11s of our team of the season, there are a lot of honourable mentions and there's a lot of overlap, but I think both of these, it's hard to argue against either one in a lot of places. It's just nice to finally get this finished because we weren't sure if the, how this tournament was going to finish and it's finished eventually with a bit of a bang and with a nice wrap-up. Yeah, 12 and a half months after starting in the first round of qualification. Ollie, before I say enjoy the pod... We should say, get in touch with us because this is still the early days of the Wilson and Windsor Libertadores podcast. Ollie, I know you've got the details of, of, well, you can contact me on Twitter at David T. Windsor. I'm not an explosive tweeter, but that, that may well change this year. Ollie, hit me with your socials. So modest, so modest. O underscore J underscore Wilson on Twitter. That's O underscore J underscore Wilson. And the willwinpodcast at gmail.com is where to email us, willwinpodcast at gmail.com. Yeah, do send us, guys, your questions, your thoughts, your your compliments, your criticisms, your heckles. Uh, yeah, we we you know we can handle it. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, enjoy the pod. A busca pela glória eterna chega em seu ápice. Maracanã, 30 de janeiro de 2021. Cruzamento na área, não acreditou, veríssimo. 
Palmeiras, Rony, cruzamento na área, Breno! <laughs> Before we dissect the actual finale, can I just talk about something almost equally as important, which is Kuka's t-shirt and his overall dress sense? And I actually think that in many ways, Kuka's entire look represents everything about South American football. As in, if you, if you haven't seen this, I mean, Kuka, the Santos boss, had this kind of T-shirt. It's the Virgin Mary, isn't it? In huge yeah. graphics, huge print. And he's also got this gold chain on top of this religious symbol. You combine it with the, the trainers and it's kind of... He's just got a very kind of bold, very strange look. And when you look at it, first of all, you think, oh, it's just kind of messy. And what is it? And it, it looks... It doesn't make any sense. And rather like South American football, the more you look at Kuka... And his, his entire look and his personality, it sort of sucks you in. And by the end, when Kuka dives in with the Santos fans to watch the kind of heartbreaking last minutes of the game, I was all on board the Santos train. I was all on board the Kuka train. I thought he was fantastic. I thought his T-shirt, I was almost looking online where I could get that T-shirt and gold chain combination. So in many ways, his whole look, it, yeah, it was is kind of emblematic of South American football. It doesn't make sense on the surface, but it will suck you in. And in the end, you'll you'll end up loving it. I was, is that too much of a stretch? No, I, I find it a bit... <laughs> baffling in that you were so dismissive of dress sense being dressed down for the Comibol Sudamericana final and and yet Kuka in the 114 minutes of madness in the Maracanã has won you over with his even more dressed down like I dress down at work Dave you know me like I don't tend to come in in a shirt when we're doing comms unless it's maybe an OB or something like that but I look smart, and we touched on this. You look smart, I look smart, compared to what Kuka's wearing. And yet, after watching him go through the waves of emotion on the sideline, and just the pure bravado, I think, to be like, nah, I'm not. I'm I'm doubling down on the South American equivalent of an Ed Hardy shirt look, and I'm going with the Virgin Mary holding the baby Jesus as big as the eye can see. <laughs> yeah, that's that's what gets me, Ollie, is the fact that the print is so large. And I just think that kind of... He's obviously a, a deeply religious man, and that, that that's great, but then like the gold chain on top of it is just a little bit confusing to me at the juxtaposition between those two things. And yeah, as I said, it's, um, it, it's chaotic, but it's also... If you watch enough of it, it becomes brilliant in its uh, sort of um, disorganisation. The game wasn't very good. How much of the 90 minutes plus are we going to talk about? Because you can attempt to analyse about 98 minutes of it where nothing happened and you would definitely be deemed to be overanalyzing it, I think. It was... Mm. I'm not going to... I'll say a few names, to be honest. People like Ralph Hanna on, on Twitter... A very experienced South American journalists were laying into this quite emphatically as a final. Um, and it will come on to a later point that I wanted to raise with you and, and I raised with you on the evening as the game was going on. But it was considered one of the worst Copa Libertadores finals in living memory. And some people were saying, well, even back in the 1960s when Colo Colo drew nil-nil with somebody you know it, they were Ralph Hanna Jack Lang 
uh, Rupert Fryer were going so far back to try and find Libertadores finals that were as anticlimactic as this one. And I think I felt sorry for a lot of people that maybe tuned in, particularly after we kind of gave it a bit of a big one on the podcast if it could be a, a real cracker between these two. And it was Brazilian football. It was what we worried about a few weeks back on this podcast when we were talking about potential all Brazilian or all Argentinian finals and how when that happens sometimes in the Libertadores, as we saw to go back to Inter against Gremio, it doesn't live up to the hype as a football game. It lives up to the hype with a bit of rough and tumble, but it was just it was just ugly. And this is, you know, a Sao Paulo State derby and it looked like a rivalry once again going through the motions that we kind of put on Brazilian football as a cliche sure. derby of poor football by two potentially good sides that just kind of like rolling around and kicking the living hell out of each other every so often. And I think you said, Peter Coates said, you know, three minutes into the game, wait for the brawl at the end. And we got that as well. It lived up to everything in a Brazilian cliche in the negative almost. No, Peter Coates called it absolutely spot on. At Galasso, of course, um, Ollie. He, yeah, it was three minutes in, two or three minutes in. I think it was after the first, and there were many, of Marino getting fouled and just kind of rolling around and showing very little desire to actually play football. And, and you could just sense... It, the, the tempo and the tone was set right from the off of it being bitty, messy, ugly. And, and Pete straight away said to me, uh, you know, WhatsApp me and said, this ends with a, a, a brawl, a massive brawl in the last couple of minutes. And, and that's, you know, that was exactly it. And that obviously Pete spent the last 10 years watching South American football. So he knows he knows what's coming. Um, it, I think the only thing I would say is finals and big football matches often end up being about moments more than they end up being about the game. And I think potentially history will treat this final a little bit kindly because if you only watch 60 seconds of it, you only watch the goal so deep into stoppage time as a result of the kind of chaos before, then, you know, you're going to get a, a kind of distorted view of how entertaining this was. There's no doubt about it. and I, It was a poor final. And I feel, I feel comfortable saying that because we've watched enough South American football now, Oli, to say that, and I've watched enough good South American football, enough bad South American football. You know, it's not like you're just a casual observer. There's nothing wrong with this, but a casual observer watching it and being like, that's crap, South American football's crap, I'm out. You know, I've seen enough to, to, to feel comfortable saying this was not very good. It's not the best representation in terms of in terms of pure football. And, and as you said, you, you've mentioned a lot of names there on Twitter who also watch a lot of South American football and, and said it was, was as bad as it, as it was, because it was, it was bitty, it was scrappy, it was messy, it was, there were no, you know, well, I was about to say there were no fans, but this is the sidebar, because there definitely were fans inside that ground. Oh, this was another wonderful comment I uh, found on social media, which is, uh, the Maracanã had around about 10% of its maximum capacity in the ground, which was great, like, it was awesome having fans there, and we'll, yeah. when we talk about Kuka, and when we talk about the goal, uh, and even when we talk about the full-time whistle, you know, like, a mini, a mini pitch invasion by those in green that were there, they you know there's not that much security needed for those few fans but they took advantage of that and all run straight onto the pitch to celebrate with the team which was actually a beautiful moment and great to watch but uh there were 10 percent or so of the stadium uh, capacity in there but they also closed off 80 percent 80 to 90 percent of the seats so the 10% of the people in the Maracanar were shoved into about 10% of the Maracanar, which then kind of ruins the whole social distancing aspect of having fans in there slightly, which is very odd, not spreading them about the place at all and having them in the compact uh, grandstand again behind the cameras, yeah. as was in the uh, 
Copa Sudamericana final, which is just an interesting take on it. But yeah, it was awesome having some supporters in there and a lot of noise was made as well. Mm. And I don't know if they turned up the mics much or what, but when, when Palmeiras eventually scored, spoiler, they win. Um, when we get around <laughs> to talking about that, it sounded loud. It was a great noise. It was a great atmosphere. And seeing a player run and celebrate with fans is everything that we miss about football, I think, in that moment. Yeah, it was it was a it was a great moment. I love how he runs to the fans, and it's not quite Tardelli, is it? But it was. I think it's ruined slightly because you know the kind of the tank top thing mm. that footballers wear to monitor. Is it to monitor that their heart rate and things like that, or is it just kind of a a, a muscle thing? I'm not sure that that specific what he was wearing, but um, uh, yeah, I, I mean it, it, it's a great moment to finish. But before we actually talk about what happened in the game, Ollie, I know we were exchanging a few messages about the the two starting lineups because there were a couple of surprises. Yeah, I think we were both very surprised to see Sandri going into that starting eleven for Santos. Mm. Because, and I, I was asking our resident Santos fan, Pedro, about it. And he said he wants this to not be a track meet straight away from the get-go, particularly in this heat. Because as the game every so often threatened to open up, you could see that there was sometimes a desire to get real end-to-end. And I think about the hour mark, we had that. So Sandri was in there to try and slow it down a bit, try and control the pace of play but it's a lot to ask for a teenager and yeah it was surprising that he he ended up uh, taking the place of Lucas Braga wasn't it in the starting 11 uh, Mm. for Santos as for Palmeiras I mean we touched on you know who on earth was going to play and how that was going to play out and Rafael Vega coming back in to the starting 11 after not being involved in the starting eleven in, in the two semi-finals, I think was was a very interesting one. And Emperor as well going out from the back line, I thought was mm. was interesting. And, and no Gustavo Scarpa too, who's somebody that I think both you and I like. It was, but we didn't know with Palmeiras at all how they were going to approach it, really. Um, so when you saw the starting eleven, you kind of thought, well, that 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 kind of works as a four-three-three almost, sure. or a or a four-five-one. Yeah, I, I mean, also Gabriel Veron being being injured and not even being on the bench was, you know, um, a, a bit of a shame seeing as the quality we've seen from him in the tournament so far. And I think if you're Gustavo Scarpa, also not even to get on the pitch, he'll be he'll be pretty frustrated. Yeah, his side have won the Libertadores, so he'll be happy, but he'll also be really frustrated that he hasn't played a minute of it. So yeah, there was a, definitely a couple of surprising inclusions. And I did my first instinct with the Palmeiras lineup is 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 that slightly more defensive than they could have gone? This is all you know, in, rep- in retrospective, uh, retrospectively kind of irrelevant now, but uh, but that was the case with, with the lineups. I mean, the game, Ollie. I think you could definitely pick the players who underperformed with far, far more easily than anyone that actually excelled. Mm. Who, I mean, for me, Lucas Verissimo for Santos was superb. I thought to pacify Luis Adriano in the way he did just further demonstrated why he's going to Benfica, why he was potentially the only player on the pitch that really you look at, you looked at and thought, yep, yep, he should be playing in Europe. He's he is a better level than what else is out there. Um, so I thought he was outstanding. I don't think anyone else really in the Santos side played particularly well. I thought for for Palmeiras, I thought Danilo was superb in front of the back four. Mm. Again, there were little moments from other players, but but you know I thought Matias Vinha had quite a good game. 
I mean, who for you stood out on an individual perspective before we slam who didn't show up? I think Danilo is in particular, you know, Lucas Verissimo is going to get a lot of praise for his performance. Um, as you say, probably the only Santos player that looks like he could play in Europe on that sort of, after those 90 minutes. But also the only Santos player that did play to his capability. I wouldn't say anybody else was even at uh, you know, 90% of what we would expect out of them a lot of the time. Uh, and as you say, kept Luis Adriano pretty much locked up for the majority of the game. Uh, Danilo, I think, would go under the radar more in what he did, but he did what he did in the first leg against River Plate as well, which was just coming back and supporting Luan Garcia and Gustavo Gomez on the edge of the 18-yard box in that slightly deeper holding midfield role perfectly. And that's the kind of role that you want somebody to play where it's almost inconspicuous that they go about their business, but their inconspicuousness shows that they're going about their business really well. Um, Matias Vigna was definitely problematic on that left flank when when Ronnie was trying to get forward and needed support. Uh, yeah, aside from that, I mean, I think Luis Adriano tried to be involved at, at times. And this was a Palmeiras side that their greatest strength is the counter-attack on the break when there's space in behind. And you saw Menino, Ronnie and Luis Adriano certainly really trying to work in that way. I actually thought Rafael Vega was a little disappointing in that I've seen him play in this tournament just off Luis Adriano and he didn't seem to be partnering him as much and was a little too deep away from the centre forward to really help him shift the ball around. He had to hold up play a bit more when he had it. Um, yeah, the as you say, the, the players that didn't shine were far more inconspic- uh, conspicuous than the players that did shine. At Weverton as well, you know... He, there weren't many shots on target in that game, but Weverton had a solid game. John had nothing to do because he didn't have a shot on target until, mm. well, a very important moment, I guess. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, the players that didn't show up, it's almost a little bit embarrassing now listening or he- hearing myself uh, in my head look back on uh, Jefferson Soteldo in the, the kind of pre-match pod, Ollie, where I said he was going to set the final alight and, uh, yeah, go for it. <laughs> Mr. Wilson's got his hand up. I don't think you need to worry about what you said about Jefferson Soteldo because... What I saw, and admittedly, I was watching this without any commentary or anything like that, so I was trying to just purely go on what I was seeing and not be influenced by too much of the chat. I saw a player that was really trying, and I think you touched on it a bit as well, about not trusting those around him at times as well, but he certainly trusts in himself. And I think because the supporting cast was such a letdown, Soteldo's performance didn't look great, but it wasn't for a, a lack of attempts to ignite Santos going forward. It, as particularly off the ball, you saw him pulling into space a lot and collect it on the left-hand side and try to drift inwards, but there was very little movement around him to create anything. So Soteldo probably doesn't come out like he's put himself in the shop window for Europe, but it's not really his fault, I don't think. Sure. There was just a great job of nullifying his individual quality and the teamwork around him didn't pay off. Yeah, yeah, and I think not to give him too much of a free pass, Ollie, but mm. at the same time, Kyle Georges, who is still a teenager, of course, I don't, I think it's, it's asking an awful lot for him to carry that side, but he just couldn't make it stick, mate. He couldn't make it stick. And, it, you know, if, if your centre forward can't make it stick, the players that usually bounce off him are going to struggle. And Marino on the other flank, who can blow very hot or cold, he just had too much on his hands with Matthias Vigna and Ronnie down that flank, and he couldn't get forward. So there, therefore, I think that Soteldo was just squeezed out because Palmeiras knew that was the only outlet for them. And yeah, I mean, it didn't help in the performance of some of his teammates, but but nonetheless, a uh, disappointing display. Very kind to Mourinho there. I mean, to I mean, both, to I, both I, of those yeah. two. 
Who? Well, I mean, I think Oli, I think Kyle George, like he's he's young, and that doesn't mean that he's immune from criticism. But at the same time, I do think you have to take that into account, mate. He's a teenager, yeah. and I think this is a Libertadores final, and I don't think we should be too harsh on him, even though I think we can. Like he's not Oli, and I saw a video that was um posted uh, on the internet this week about Gabriel Veron and and uh, and Kyle George using words like wonder kid and superstar and next Ronaldo, which is just. Mm. you know incredible ridiculous hyperbole Carlos Jorge scored some goals in the Libertadores this year I like the fact that he's a fox in the box kind of old school striker but he hasn't done it in the league we haven't seen enough of Carlos Jorge to say he's going to take it to the next level he's just he's just scored a few goals in the tournament and he's young I think that's fair still not quite sure what he is as a striker to be honest Marino I mean I, I just I just I don't know how much he really wanted to play football I, I know he's the most foul player in the tournament I think or certainly was a couple of rounds ago but I just don't know how much he wanted to play football. He was intent on trying to win free kicks. That that, yeah. that was it. And sometimes he was fouled a lot. That's fair enough. But I just, like, he, did, he just didn't want to play, which is so odd because he does have quality. So I would say, just quickly on Kyrie George, he in the semifinals and final has done as much for Santos as Franco Soldano did for Boca. <laughs> He was as relevant in those games, in those three games, as Soldano was relevant in the two semifinals. <laughs> he had a great game against Gremio. Well, Quality. Uh, no, Kyle George he, he's, played he's, really... He, he scored goals, though, Oli. Yeah. And Soldano Kyle hasn't. Yeah, but yeah. Kyle George... And Kyle George, you know, he stepped up in that quarterfinal against Gremio. He, you know, was a great part of what was a great moment for Santos's Copa Libertadores campaign, for sure. But I... And he's young, so the expectation for consistency is harsh. But it's also, if you're going to be the front man in a couple of Dodoris final and semi-finals, you do need to provide more. I mean, it's not harsh to say there is an expectation if you're in the starting eleven to make the most of it. It's what we've said about Soldano. And regardless of age, it's a professional footballer who's gone missing in three of the, in the three biggest games of the year. For Mourinho, I mean... I don't know, again, if I'm just not seeing what other people in Brazil have seen. And admittedly, you know, I don't watch the Brazilian league, uh, only see highlights when preparing for things like the Libertadores uh, podcasts and, and coverage. But aside from that second leg against Boca in the semifinals, I can't see many games where he's really shone as, again, another player that people are talking about European potential and being a, no, a, no, an absolute no, yeah. superstar. No, and no, then no. the final, the attitude in the final compounded that. The, <laughs> the, the, the Just throwing himself all over the place, complaining to the ref every three seconds and an inability to use the ball productively 90% of the time, which is something you can levy at a lot of the players in this final, sure. but it sticks out more for the guys that have had a lot of pre, pre-build-up, pre-amp to it. And, and they don't come shining through. So that's, again, and I think that also highlights why I'm giving Soteldo a bit more of a pass than the other two in that front three, because the other two were just absent, completely absent. There was a goal, Mr. Oliver Wilson. There was a goal, <laughs> thankfully. It took long enough. And it was fun, right? It was a last minute winner, like last year. It's fun. It's an unbelievable goal, to be honest. It's... It's a brilliant delivery from Honey. It is superb to find a man at the back post like that from that far out, deep on the on the right side. It's not super deep, but it's definitely like on the fringe of the edge of the final third. And uh, and to pick out the substitute, Bruno Lopez, 
but he has a great rise. There's a wonderful picture of him watching that ball all the way onto his head. You know, it's just in front of his forehead, about a foot off it, and his eyes are exactly on it. It's got a great leap on his marker as well. Not um, offensively aggressive in the aerial challenge, climbing all over the defender. And then he watches it and he stares it down into the far corner. It was very similar to me of the Messi header in Rome for Barcelona against Manchester United in the Champions League. It just had, as soon as it came off his head, you were like, that's in. The keeper's not getting anywhere near it and it's nestling in. It it looked a goal all the way through. It's a wonderful header. Breno Lopez, like, take a bow. I mean, yeah. I think we were all rooting, you and I were rooting for Gustavo Scarpa to step up and come off the bench. And in the end, one of the substitutes does do the job, but Breno Lopez with a superb header. And by that stage, of course, Kuka was in the in the stands oh with, the, <laughs> with the fans. Talk, talk to me about this, Dave, because give, really give, me a, give me a rundown of what, what happened. Because I don't really understand it still. I feel like I'm, miss it, I'm missing something. I mean, I haven't seen it back from when I watched it. He got sent off, Ollie, for I, I, I don't really understand. You have to... It was such a confusing little passage of play. But eventually, Kuka gets sent off and, and hurdles... You know, it goes into the fans and they kind of sort of mop him straight away. Security pushes away the fans and then 30 seconds later, his side has just lost the Libertadores final. And I don't want to bring it back. Yeah, I feel like some of the magic of him being on the touchline maybe was sucked out of the, the Santos side because they've conceded. <laughs> they were, they conceded 30 seconds after he... Uh, after he's you know off the technical area does yeah, it yeah so. does it do you reckon it affects mentally just you you know you have all of Maybe. that going on around your side you see your manager going into the stands with all the fans there was a great moment when he's vaulted into the stands and he's trying to walk to a place where he can try and bark out orders still and he was doing a very good job of still as they cut to him in the celebrations of the goal and he's like oh we need mm. to change around and move this and stuff it's like, yeah, fair yeah. play he's still trying to get his side back into this yeah, they can't see you could go yeah can't don't worry you. about it <laughs> like, yeah, it's, yeah. the trouble is with not wearing a suit is that you don't stand out when you go into the crowd and have to try and work it from the touchline yeah. um but there was the a divine great... intervention had gone hadn't it exactly yeah i mean it's like, left the pitch it's not going to yeah. happen um there but there was a great moment where there's about five fans around him and there's a few of them are like pushing him like hey Google, like amazing oh my god i'm with the manager and there was one guy that kind of looked like he was just trying to have like a reasonable footballing conversation and i'm not able to speak portuguese i can't lip read very well or anything like that but just the look on his face is kind of like Kuka, what's going on? Why are we not doing this? Come on, man. We need to be sorting this. It's just the body language screams of that. And I love the one guy that's trying to be the assistant coach to the manager. <laughs> the first second he gets to be alongside him. Saw a vacuum. Saw a little power vacuum and stepped in. Here's my role. You know, we all wear the shirt to the stadium hoping that they need a substitute and they point you out in the crowd and get you on the pitch. This was his, sure. the assistant manager dream version of it. But the <laughs> right. Kuka thing's just wild. Like he, he kind of dives on the ball to prevent a quick throw and then gets in a bit of a, a pushing and a shoving match as well as with Marcus Rocha. And it's... It all gets, it's, it's handbags then on the touchline and everybody starts pushing and throwing things around. But I kind of understand the sending off. Do you? He doesn't dive on the ball, Ollie. He sort of, well, I mean, we're sort of dissecting something now that's, that's in the fullness of history. It's completely irrelevant. But he, he I don't think he dives on the ball, mate. Is, 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 is trying to prevent Palmeiras from getting on with the job. He's not, he's preventing, if a player does it in the pitch, it's a, it's a, uh, v, wanting a VAR for his own sending off again, and this Honestly, is this is why you could amazing. get on the Kuka bandwagon in this <laughs> moment because like, I'm signed up. It's almost as good as the Bolivian officials 
uh, earlier on, I think it was in the tournament, or was it in a game in Bolivia? It was while we were in Argentina, so very early on in the tournament, where they didn't have VAR at the stadium, but the referee, when he was talking to his assistant, made the VAR sign as if, I'm going to talk to my assistant about this on the touchline, walked over, spoke to the guy on the touchline. No VAR was used at all, but he still made the little screen hand Because there was no VAR. Yeah, 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 the VAR wasn't an option. He still gives the hand signal. And when Kuka gets sent off, and he's he's giving it the VAR signal, but yeah, I mean it's just amazing, mate. I'm on board the Cougar bandwagon, Fair. Um, big but, time. But is it a sending off for a manager to delay the ball like that compared to? Because if a player does it, it's a talking to maybe a yellow in a serious moment. For a manager to do it on the sideline, I mean he's allowed to be on the touchline. You know, it seems a bit harsh to send him off. It provided a moment of drama in a much needed game for drama, but yeah, yeah the game needed it. Um... But uh, yeah, I mean, he hasn't gone on the field of play. The ball has come to him. He hasn't run over and yeah. I thought it was a very harsh, uh, a very harsh decision. And who knows? As you say, like it's easy to kind of dismiss that as oh, isn't that a bit funny? But it would have affected the concentration of the Santos players. And and, and you know, <laughs> you'll never know. But it's it, I think it had an impact on on what happened next. But but Palmeiras lift the trophy. Yeah, there were there were only a couple of chances. Santos had more efforts on target before the goal. Um, there was there was one that really stood out for me, that was uh, a free kick, that was clipped into the eighteen yard box by Mourinho in the second half, and for the life of me, I can't remember who was arriving at the at the far post to try and nod it. I think it was um, Felipe Jonathan, um, and he kind of lunges towards it, can't get his head quite on it, and ends up going wide. But it was a really well worked move because Soteldo had faked like he was going to hit it. Then Mourinho doesn't strike it from distance for once and instead clips it towards the far post. And that was a time when you thought, okay, Santos were getting into their groove, into their little great spell they had in the hour mark. And they were never able to capitalise, unfortunately, on that. For the rest of that game, Palmeiras looked the more dangerous threat, I think, over the 90 minutes. Because they were waiting for Santos to push up and then try and hit on the counter. And at times, there was a lot of space. And to be honest, the back four were really disciplined in snuffing out those counter-attacks quite quickly, quite high up the pitch as well, and not affording Palmeiras that much room to run into, even though there was a lot of space in the Santos half on a couple of occasions. It was just requiring one or two passes from those in green to split open the Santos defence and it just was never there and those moments were few and far between but that's why I always thought Palmeiras were going to edge it I didn't think it was going to go down to being one of the longest Copa Libertadores games of all time certainly the longest final of all time I think it was yeah my, my question to you Ollie was going to be did Palmeiras deserve it and I think they probably did they were they were the better side I'm not saying they carved out loads of opportunities but they they were the better side there was just one or two moments where Luis Adriano was you know, he was a, a, a sort of a step away from getting, from gaining, um, you know, getting the ball in a really dangerous area in the penalty area, which you can't call a chance, but there were just one or two moments. I think Palmeiras looked the more likely side to score. And of course they did. So I think on balance, if you're a Santos fan, you obviously can be frustrated with the way you've conceded such a dramatic last minute goal, but I don't think really you can say you deserve to win it. No, no, I, to be honest, Part of me wants to say neither side deserved to win it on their yeah. performances. And I think a lot of us were quite actually glad. I mean, I know we had 15 minutes almost of stoppage time, but it would have been a tough another half an hour after that as well if we had gone to extra time. And then obviously the lottery of penalties. Breno Lopez's goal after 98 minutes and 28 seconds. The latest goal in a Copa Libertadores final ever. Uh, displacing uh, Rolando Skyvi 
of Boca Juniors, who scored against Santos in 2003 in the 94th minute and 33 seconds. Very good, Mr. Wilson. Very good. I did not yeah. research these facts myself. I uh, found places around the internet, but I, yeah, there's a few things to drop in. No, I like that a lot. Keep them coming. Um, you said to me during the game that perhaps this evolution towards a one-off final in the Copa Libertadores, which of course wasn't always the case by any stretch. It's only this year and last year was the first year where they had a, a one-off final where Flamengo beat River Plate, of course. Prior to that, it was always two legs home and away of the final. Um, what do we think, Ollie? You were kind of suggesting that if you play the two legs, you maybe get a more open game of football. You know, that it's a better spectacle. I can understand the movement towards a one-off 90-minute final. Where, where do you stand on that? Well, isn't it something that we always say in almost every cup competition is that the semi-finals are generally far better a, a viewing experience for particularly for the neutral than the final um and we with that expectation at least a two leg semi final gives the emphasis on one of those sides to really push on home soil or to try and sneak an away goal you know it, there's i think there are a bit a few more levels to the game over a two legged affair compared to a 90 minutes of tension and that's the great thing about this final is that you know, over a two-leg game, we don't, we're unlikely to get as explosive a finale to it. Yeah, that that's it. That's and that's the pros and cons that you have to outweigh. Mm. Would you rather see a potential game that's going to be more open over two legs, but maybe could end up being, if the first leg finishes 4-0 and nothing really happens in the first half of the second leg, there's a lot of football that's pretty much a dead rubber at that point. I, I think just because I spent most of my childhood and life watching european football and then kind of world cups that night that one-off final is so, is for me a final like a final is one game of football that's mm. so ingrained in me um i know that's maybe not disrespectful but that's that's not appreciating the fact that copa libertadores historically has been a two-leg final so you can understand if you if you're born born and raised watching the copa libertadores ollie it would jar slightly right making it a 90 minute final because that's not what the history of the competition is but just for me from my perspective of watching football it, it sits better to have that one-off pinnacle do or die all all or nothing 90 minutes yeah i i wonder if you have the 90 minute final do you have to potentially go back to later kickoffs on the continent because having it at about five o'clock in the afternoon in Rio obviously the final's not going to be in January again ideally we'll be back to the normal schedule with it finishing November for the uh, foreseeable future but I mean I said the heat isn't making this great and I think you were like well they're athletes so you know yeah I've always been I always don't on the you know when the the kind of drinks breaks come in we even had that in the Premier League when the players came yeah, back that after was the weird. Pilot, which was like oh my god I've lived in England the majority of my life like you don't need a drinks break guys it's really really not that hot yeah like you're a, you're a professional athlete I, I don't understand the drinks break midway through the half listen South America there's humidity it's, it's a lot warmer but also Ollie, these players they do play in South America they That's... do play in South America so like it's not like a totally alien situation so yeah I don't, I don't really um, but I, the heat I th thing is, is, is a is irrelevant i think for the individual game i think it might be better a better viewing spectacle or an, and encourage a better viewing spectacle both under the lights which as you know i'm a big fan of and also to deal with perhaps allowing a, a cooler temperature drop later on in the day 
it, it nullifies a bit of the European market, perhaps, and certainly the Asian well, market for watching that's it. That's it. That's but it. it would also then appeal perhaps to a North American market and obviously the South American market as well. Because if you think in, in New York, that's kicking off at three o'clock in the afternoon, which is like mm. for us, that's traditional primetime sport viewing on a Saturday. But for maybe for a North American audience who are used to primetime sport being Saturday night, Sunday night with the NFL, NBA, baseball, hockey, etc. That's that's a different one to try and get into. Yeah, but I think if, if the aim is to get as many eyeballs as possible on the Copa Libertadores final, then I do think that's the right time slot. Yeah, Because sure. it does make it accessible for a North American audience. It makes it a good time for European audience. You know, you're always going to, someone's going to lose out mm. <laughs> in terms of the other side of the world. And if you're in Australia, it's not a great time. But yeah, I, I think that's the right time slot if the aim is to, to get people watching the Libertadores final. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's the, it's again, you, are you going for the bigger audience or the bigger spectacle would have, better final get a bigger audience probably not because you don't know it's a great final until afterwards and yeah now i understand it so palmeras win it the second time in their history first since 1999 um yeah they they lift the trophy any more thoughts on the final itself uh just another another quick fact yeah yeah go for it santos obviously conceded from a headed goal to lose the final they conceded five headed goals in this tournament. It was the most in the tournament from headed goals. So if you're going to beat Santos, the aerial attack is the way to way forward nice, for this. Nice, nice. Uh, the third time a non-South American manager has won it, and of course the first time that back-to-back non-South American managers have won yeah, it as well. Yeah. Two Portuguese. Do you yeah. think that sets a precedent a bit and sets a tone slightly, particularly for Brazilian clubs? I think certainly Jorge Jesus last year was was a big moment because, you know, when he first came in, there was a real sentiment in, in Brazil that he should have gone to a Brazilian coach. This year is probably just doubling down on that appreciation that a good coach is a good coach and, and I don't think it really matters if they're if they're if they're South American or Portuguese or, or Japanese or whatever. It's it, it doesn't matter. Um obviously the language is, is clearly clearly a crucial factor there. Um but yeah, I, I think and they also uh, we also had Weverton only conceding six goals in the tournament yeah I mean well this is kind of well should we do should we should we listen Ollie to how this uh, the goal was was heard around the world yeah let's hear from our commentators from all over the globe on the defining moment of the Copa Libertadores 2025 <laughs> Para Ronnie, a ver si puede meter acá el único gol del partido que puede ser de la victoria. El centro del área, golazo. E a bola volta a rolar. Já estamos no final dos acréscimos, mas o jogo ficou muito tempo parado. Vem Palmeiras, Rony, cruzamento na área, Breno! 
de Breno Lopes é do Palmeiras! Imediatamente após a confusão, o Palmeiras joga a bola na área. Ele que entrou no finalzinho do jogo sobe, desvia do goleiro John, a bola morre no fundo das redes. Player of the tournament, Mr. Wilson. Officially, yeah. Yeah, no, go on, go on. I know what you're going to say. <laughs> well, officially, it went to Mourinho. Yeah. Yeah, that's... Unof- unofficially, who do, you know, who do uh, the Wilson and Windsor Libertadores podcast give it to? There's only one man, isn't there? The man who's usurped Bruno Eniki as the king of the Libertadores for this year. It's Ronnie. It has it, to be. It has to be. I mean, Bruno Enrique last year, we went on about him, rightly so, because he was fantastic. Five goals and five assists. I, I think Bruno Henrique is a better player than Ronnie, than Ronnie, but Ronnie, five goals and I think eight assists. I might have eight got that ass- right. No, it is eight assists. Eight assists. I mean, that is, that's astonishing. I think statistically it has to be him and he's assisted, you know, the, the winning goal in the final as well. So yeah, I, I, I can't believe he didn't win it. He's equaled the record for the most assists in the tournament held by Matias Suarez of uh, River Plate. Mm. He uh, gets the assist in the final. He's scored and created goals, being one of the integral parts of this Palmeiras side. I don't know, and he ends up lifting the trophy with his team. I don't know how, particularly after what I said about Mourinho, I don't know how that's happened. I'm not one to judge. I'm not, look, I'm not a scout. I've never played the game at a professional level. I'm obviously missing something. Mm. But I just think, I think Ronnie was robbed at the end of the day. Absolutely robbed. I'm looking forward to this one, Ollie. Our team of the tournament, as in our best 11 of the tournament. Shall mm. I go first? Definitely, definitely. Okay, I've gone with Esteban Andrada in goal. Eight clean sheets in the Libertadores this year. I think he's the best goalkeeper. I think, yeah, he's the most impressive goalkeeper for me. He was great last year. He's great this year. Andrada in goal. My back four, Matias Vinha. The Uruguayan, of course, Palmeiras left back. I think he's got great potential. I think he ends up in Europe. Um, really love his energy. I think he's tidy, really a confident player. Bit of a nasty side to him maybe as well, which I quite like. Right back, Gonzalo Montiel. I've talked about Montiel for two years now since the first time he played. I think he's a fantastic right back. He's consistently, I'm not quite up to date on this actually, Oli, but he's consistently linked to a move to Italy. I'm not sure whether that's going to uh, come through or not. I imagine it will in the next 12 months. My two centre-backs. Lucas Verissimo was outstanding in the final, as we mentioned, against a, a real, real threat in Luis Adriano. Managed to to kind of nullify him. Um, yeah, he's the best centre back in on the continent, I think. That was sort of highlighted to us by Pedro um, a while back, and you can really see it. I mean, he really—I know his side lost and they conceded a goal, but he really stepped up to the occasion. I think he'll do very well at Benfica alongside him. <sighs> I've gone with Carlos Izquierdos at Boca. Ooh, okay. All right. Yeah, I could have gone for Lopez alongside him. And I really did think about that. For me, Izquierdos just scores goals as a centre-back. And I like a centre-back that scores goals. And Izquierdos has a habit of scoring. He he scores goals from from set pieces. So, Verissimo and Izquierdos, my two centre-backs. I think think he's... The Boca side is is strong defensively. I know what happened in the semi-final 
it definitely goes against it, but I, I think he's 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 in there. Then I've gone for a kind of. It's almost a 4-3-3, but it could also work defensively as more of a 4-5-1. But let's say that it's an attacking side. It's a will score more than you kind of side. So let's go for a 4-3-3. I've gone for Danilo just protecting the back four. I thought he was great in the final. You mentioned his semi-final performance against River in the first leg. So Danilo sitting in front of the back four. In front of him, Nico De La Cruz and Gabriel Menino. I know both of... Uh, say again. Lovely. Yeah, I think like both of those two players, you can shift wide. But in my viewing of both of them, I think they're better just tucked in a little bit. So I think Gabriel Menino and, and Nico De La Cruz there, you've got goals, you've got creativity. If a side's really going to sit back against my 11, then I do believe that Menino and, and, and Nico De La Cruz <laughs> can find a way through. They're both like a shot from range, which is good. They can pick locks. I think that they'll do the business. Defensively, it could be a little bit concerning maybe but let's leave that there it's a fun side uh Borre is my striker Oli not because I love saying Rafael Santos Borre and I've really got that the, the rolling up not just because of that but because he scored seven goals in the tournament I think he's clinical I love the way he can he can peel either side uh and I just I, I think he's class I'm, I'm surprised he I know he had a brief spell in Europe didn't work out I don't I think he's about 25 26 now so the window to go back to Europe might just have gone but if he he's a goal scorer and I really really like him and then either side of him doesn't matter which flank they play on obviously I've got Honey five goals eight assists as we mentioned the player well, our player of the tour the unofficial player of the tournament and on the other flank Ollie I've got Fidel Martinez Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Now, now if wow. you haven't listened to Wilson and Windsor's Libertadores podcast for the entirety of this tournament, you might be thinking, Fidel, who? Who? What? Who? Well, Fidel Martinez <laughs> played for Barcelona, played for Ecuadorian side Barcelona in the qualifying stages of the tournament when, when Oli and myself were out in Argentina covering the tournament really, really closely. Scored eight goals just in the qualification, just in the three rounds each of those rounds was home and away, but just in the three rounds of qualification, scored eight goals. Then he's got his move to China. And for me, like, is it controversial to have a player who only played in the qualification stages of the tournament to be in your final 11? Yes. But he was fantastic. And Oli has a great comms line at the time where Fidel Martinez, you are exceptional. And he was exceptional. He was absolutely outstanding. Great fun to watch. There was a tiny... No, there was a there was a, a decent chunk of Mioli, the real hardcore football hipster that wanted to put Dami and Diaz mm. in the in the eleven, who also was really great in, in qualification. Clearly I didn't because he's not one of the best eleven players. So I've got Fidel Martinez and Ronnie. They can switch flanks. Uh Borre up front. I think there's bags of goals in that team. Three players who very nearly got in but didn't. Eduardo Salvio, I I think he's great. I think he's almost too good for South America. But he didn't show up in the in the semi-final, and that really annoyed me. Luis Adriano, if he'd been a shade sharper in the final, I think he could have got a goal, and then he would have replaced Borre, but he didn't. And uh, Matias Suarez as well, loads of goals, loads of assists. He's so busy, he's exciting. I think he could fit into any side on the continent and, and excel. Those three didn't get in the side, though, so, so it's irrelevant. That's my 11. I am taking such exception to this Fidel Martinez, only because... The qualification rounds, he was brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. But he did play in the group stage as well. Yeah, he did. And he was crap. Yeah, but his mind's <laughs> in China then. 
Oh, okay, he's already right. he's, he's made his move. I'm giving him a pass there because he, he's done his job. He took his sides to the groups. He can't do it all. He got his move. Okay, fair enough. You're giving him it's the, the top uh, scorer. The, it's the top scorer in the 2020 slash 2021 Copa Libertadores. Fidel Martinez is the top scorer. Okay, all right, fair enough. Um, Hit me with yours or any, anything else to, to take apart with mine. No, no, no. There, there's a lot about that side that I like. To be honest, there's okay. a lot about that side that I like. And I, I there's think a couple. There'd be a big overlap. Is there a big overlap with yours, or have you gone different directions? I've got quite. I've got a few different ones for sure. Okay. Um, Izquierdos could have come into mine, particularly with the back three that I'm playing. But uh, you you picked a back three and you haven't included Izquierdos. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. It. I had a, a toss up for the back three. There were three. There were three players vying for the last spot. So Esteban Andrade, much like yourself, goes in. Definitely the best goalkeeper in the Libertadores, in my opinion. Uh, Weverton obviously equaled him with the number of clean sheets in this tournament. But I'm going with Andrade. I thought it was just a better performance, uh, better performer over the whole competition. And I love that Boca back line, which is why it was such a toss up for the back three. Because I went with Gustavo Gomez of Palmeiras. Mm, yeah, okay. who was the anchor for Palmeiras in that in that back line. Lucas Verissimo of Santos, because he is probably the best central defender on that continent at the moment. Obviously, he's going off to Benfica. And I didn't want to let one mistake ruin a centre-back that I really rated for adapting to different partners in this. So I went with Robert Rojas of River Plate because Lucas Martinez Cuarta and he were really good together. And then Quarta goes, and Rojas has to form that same relationship with Diaz at the back. And I thought, aside from where Rojas gets turned and is allow- and allows Adriano in in the semi-final first leg, I thought he was really good. And I really rated the performance in that second leg to bounce back from a negative performance and actually was phenomenal as the whole of that River Plate side were. So I went with Robert Rojas in the end and that's where I wanted to bring in his Kierdos as well. The other two were certainly two real standouts for me defensively. So that's my back three of Rojas, Verissimo and Gustavo Gomez. My fullbacks are the same. Montiel is brilliant. Wonderful player going up the right flank. Matias Vigna as well for Palmeiras on the left. Certainly great. I wanted to put in Preciado of Independiente del Valle as a fullback. But right back, he cannot overtake Montiel. There's no way that that can happen. Um, so then I've got the fullbacks kind of make up a midfield four for me. So that's my wide men in my midfield four. I've got Danilo sitting in front of the back three as another anchor, rock solid, will mop up everything. And that gives a little a little more space for my favourite River Plate player, Nico De La Cruz, to roam. And then you've got the nice combination of he and Montiel just on that right flank going up and down. I surprised... Uh, no surprise that Ronnie, uh, Ronnie made it into, uh, obviously, the starting eleven, best player of the tournament in both our opinions. Salvio, again, was close. I thought, actually, uh, Vija, as well, for Boca, got mm. better as the tournament went on. But again, both of those didn't produce it in the semi-final. So, just missing out. Jefferson Sotel, though, didn't play many games, but when he played, was the best player on the pitch for Santos. Both the semi-finals, uh, the couple of games in the group stage early on uh, missed a large chunk of the tournament but I'm willing to put him in I'd love him as a creative player on the left hand side of my front three Ronnie on the right and finding a centre forward was difficult because Boré is probably one of only two centre forwards that stood out for me and maybe I've got a bit of bias 
maybe it's going to play nicely as this front three can interchange with each other. But the Panamanian centre forward for Independiente Del Valle, Gabriel Torres, was brilliant during this tournament. Picked up four goals in the group stage. But he doesn't just score goals. He does a bit of everything. The only negative blip I can put on his tournament is the number of missed chances in the first knockouts uh, round of the competition. If he puts one of those away, Independiente Del Valle making a push through this tournament, I think. I think they were a really good side. We saw some wonderful performances from them. And that's not just because of my bias. I do watch their games and focus on their games perhaps a little more than others. But I really enjoyed a lot of the, the football that they played. And I think Gabriel Torres is certainly one of the best catalysts in their uh, attacking front. And I would bank on him with the support he's got around him in my 11 to, Oli, uh, to get the goals. Oli, I'd bank on him, but Nacional, I, I don't think I've seen so much dominance from independent from any side against another side over the course of two legs. And Independiente de Valle didn't go through against Nacional. Yeah. And I, uh, Borre scores those chances. Yeah, I mean, it's just two bad nights, it, it, which isn't great. But I, I, I love watching Gabriel Torres. Mm. So that's that's my... And he was, the group stage, brilliant. Mm. How so. many, I'm just trying to think how many different clubs we've represented there with our two sides combined. We've represented Palmeiras, Santos, Boca, River, Independiente del Valle, Barcelona. Yeah. Six? Yeah. Six teams. Yeah. And to be honest, the, the vast, you know, we've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, seven players have overlapped in our two sides. It is basically big Brazilian and big Argentine sides. I mean, the which... successful, the successful teams in this tournament as well. Yeah, yeah. It's difficult to like turn yeah, away yeah. from that. I think last year we had very similar sides as well. Mm. And to be honest, I was quite desperate to ensure that there wasn't too much overlap from last year's competition. Obviously, you know, no Gabi goal, no Bruno Enrique. Um mm makes it quite easy the lackluster flamengo that we saw at times does mean that we weren't going to be too similar for last year but you know montiel made it in last year nico de la cruz i think made it in last year as well i think andrada as well was in one of our sides so yeah there's a a little overlap from the last two years or so so definitely players to look out for in in the third season of the wilson and windsor libertadores podcast amazing your favorite goal ollie of the tournament all right so I haven't got to, but there is a winner and a a notable shout. So the notable shout is for a player who I've already mentioned just a few moments ago, Preciado, in an incredible night uh, in September. Independiente del Valle 5, Flamengo 0. And Preciado picks up the ball on the left-hand side and just cuts onto the right boot. And it's a beautiful curling strike it's against a weakened flamengo side but it was kind of that game felt like a bit of an iconic moment in this libertadores anyway of the reigning champions being destroyed not just rocked and rattled destroyed by the uh, reigning copa sudamericana champions so that was a great goal but actually and again i you might remember this this is going all the way back to march 12th my goal fernando guerrero Not a name that's going to crop up in your teams of the tournaments or anything like that. Another Independiente Del Valle player, unfortunately, which again is showing a bit (laughs) of... (laughs) But only because I remember this game really well. I was watching the game while waiting for one of my later games to kick off. And it was Independiente Del Valle against Junior. 
and the Ecuadorians scored three goals and all three of them were absolutely brilliant. Three long-range strikes. One of them was from the wonder kid, Caicedo, the second one they scored. The third one was a mazy run from the halfway line, finished with a cool strike into the bottom corner from 18 yards. But Guerrero, it's another one coming in from the right, cuts inside, and he's kind of languid and leisurely as he looks to pull the trigger. No one closes him down too much, none of the junior players. And then he just lashes a left-footed strike, and it rips. It's not a curler. It's an absolute belter into the far top corner. And it was on a game where you it was difficult to pick which was the best goal in that game. Guerrero strike was to me the best one. So that's and it and it was one it it means a bit to me because we were back in Argentina watching yeah, it yeah. in in our situation that we were in in South America. And yeah, it was a wonderful goal. And again, it was a game that you were like this group of death is coming alive. You know, all of the teams in that group of death were starting to play football. I've. My runner-up is Gabby Goal against Racing when Bruno Enrique lays it on a plate for him. Do you remember? Yeah, the outside of the boot the, ball across yeah, the six-yard box for him. The, the, it's pouring rain in Buenos Aires and Bruno Enrique, who was so fantastic last year, just giving us that. And I know he, he suffered injuries and we didn't see anything like the best of him this time around, but just that kind of slow that kind of shift from second to fourth gear as he glides down the left hand side outside the right foot literally it couldn't have been a centimeter better placed and Gabby goal doing what he does popping it in just got gave me so many flashbacks to the tournament last year mm. and I, I thought that was it that, that was a great goal my my favorite goal <laughs> is Rafael Santos Borre scoring against Palmeiras purely because in that moment where he grabs the ball and runs back towards the halfway line, Ollie, and he's so fired up, and the camera cut, the production spot on because they 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 are focusing on Borre's face, and then they cut straight away to Gachado, and he's looking, they're looking at each other, and they're both just in this kind of pumped up unison of yeah yeah we're river we can we can definitely do this we can do we're gonna do this I know they didn't but there's this, there's this <laughs> moment of. It's just this unbelievable moment of trust and belief, and okay, the goal itself isn't isn't a great goal, but for me, that 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 was one of my favourite moments, and that, I'm gonna, that's my favourite goal of the tournament. The only other one that I thought about was one that was actually on one of the preview kind of videos for the final, and it's the Gabriel Veron volley against Delphi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a technique wise, sure. and there will be a lot of people that will say that's probably the best finish of the tournament. It's a, yeah, it's an yeah. unbelievable goal, but yeah, I. There's something, it's nice to have something more than just the finish. It's like there are moments surrounding and emotion surrounding like the favourite goals that we've picked in this tournament. Yeah, that Bore one and that, that second semi-final. I mean, I know people that tuned in and watched both of those two legs of the semi-finals and they were like, they're two of the best games of football, particularly yeah. the second leg. People were blown away. People that don't normally watch South American football sure. were blown away by River. It was great, man. Probably why Gachado is going to make another run for it in this coming year well just chatting to sort of pete and a few people and joel and i think he's gonna stay throughout 2021 well his, his contract his contract at the end of 2021 and he said oh, we can't go down this <laughs> but we, he, he always said the taxi driver said everyone said he stays till the end of his contract he's one of those like jürgen klopp right seven years at Mainz, seven years at dortmund he, he he's got a contract and in a very rare thing in football these days he will honor that contract and it runs out in i think it's december this year december of 2021 and you know what if if certain things fall the right way 
River and Boca could meet in the final, you know. (laughs) (laughs) That's enough of that. That's enough of that. Oli, Palmeiras won the tournament. That takes them into the Club World Cup. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm kind of amazed that the Club World Cup is happening this year with everything going on with travel. But wow, like it is happening. Uh, it's, It's from a European lens. It's possibly only the last few years where... Actually, no, I'm going to rephrase that because I think I know the Spanish take it really, really seriously. But from an English perspective, it's never really been seen. It's always been seen as a nuisance rather than anything else. If you can win it, great. It's always at a far-flung destination. It's right in the middle of the season, kind of interrupts the FA Cup. Like There's a few different things where where perhaps there's a bit of English arrogance in looking at the Club World Cup. But elsewhere in the world, it is a big deal. And you do feel... Obviously, the pandemic has kind of punctured the uh, never-ending feeling of globalisation. But you do feel in such a globalised world that the Club World Cup, Ollie, over the next 50 years is going to be really, really important. You know, you can see, I, I just think you can see it. And Palmeiras are in it. They're straight into the semi-finals as it goes with, with the Club World Cup, which is, of course, taking place in Qatar. And they will play in that semi-final in a one-off game, the winner of Tigres of Mexico and a Korean side, Ulsan Hyundai so and that is on the 7th of February and then the winner goes into the final and will probably play Bayern Munich it's the tradition of those names I think that always (laughs) attracts me to the (laughs) FIFA Club World Cup you know so much history behind even just the names of those sides no I I know I know you were disappointed that Auckland City got knocked out in the first round Ollie as well very much so very much so because Auckland is a city and that's you know one of the things that I like they're the (laughs) Ronson of football teams yeah yeah Yeah, yeah, they're very good I'm I'm always devastated that um, championship manager legendary side Suwon Blue Wings don't achieve enough because they used to have a star-studded team back in like 97 98 on that game for some reason Um, I digress this I think everybody would want to see, every neutral would want to see a Palmeiras against Tigres semi-final. Just for footballing quality, no disrespect to uh, Sion Hyundai, but uh, it's just, what was it? Sion Hyundai? Ulsan Hyundai. Hyundai, excuse me. Um, If if you're you're listening to the Wilson and Windsor Libertadores podcast and you're a fan of that club, then do get in touch and we'll maybe do, uh, well, we were talking about maybe doing a podcast for... uh, Palmeiras in, in the Club World Cup anyway, so it'd be great well, to have a representative from the South Koreans. I think we would because the, the South Americans take this as we've seen in the flesh down there with the weight that's put on, you know, Racing Club's success in it. And, and in general, it's just considered a very high profile tournament because it's a chance to show up the Europeans. There, There is definitely an idea of we want to show the Europeans that we're better at football or just as good at football, despite the financial differences between European and South American football. And that's the opportunity to do it on a stage as big as the Club World Cup. I think you you were saying before we recorded, you, you quite highly rate Mexican football on a similar level as South American football at least. So for a competitive, enjoyable standpoint, Tigres against Palmeiras will be a fun game to watch. And I think Mexican football does have an ability to really entertain. It's a bit like the Brazilian football though of it can get nasty as well. It can just be a kicking match and not be great when I've covered it anyway. So, and you could probably say that about a lot of leagues around the world, to be honest. Sure. But the big question will be Palmeiras against Bayern Munich, won't it? If they can meet in the final, as is expected, probably the two biggest sides in the tournament. Although Tigres are a big side, obviously in Central America and obviously in Mexico. It's not massive, yeah. Yeah. So, 
But from a South American perspective on this podcast, we would like to see Bayern against Palmeiras. And I tell you what, I'd give them a chance. I'd give them more of a chance than against Liverpool. And uh, Flamengo had last year. Well, If they can sort out the back three, Bayern going forward are a very good side. But watching the Bundesliga this year, as both you and I have on occasion and, and worked on it on occasion, of course, Bayern are there to be got at defensively. They are kind of all over the place at the moment and they concede and they concede to sides that you wouldn't expect them to concede. And the margin of victory on a number of occasions is so fine for them getting themselves out of trouble. And they're leading the Bundesliga by a fair way still because other teams around them are falling by the wayside too. But I've seen them struggle against Wolfsburg this year. I've seen them get out of jail against Freiburg thanks to Thomas Müller. I've I've seen Schalke them... the other day who were like rock you know rock bottom of the table gave him a scare in the first half hour uh, you know I was covering that one the other day and I know what you mean also it's hard to say how good Bayern are because they're they're going to win the ninth straight Bundesliga title they're head and shoulders above everyone else in the division always so it's hard to see when you watch them it is hard to say how good they are but from a style you of know. football again if Palmeiras are able to soak up and and nullify which is very difficult to do I don't say this lightly the likes of Lewandowski and Muller by having Danilo in front of a very good back line for Palmeiras you know defensively they're excellent Weverton is obviously a, a very good keeper in South America and then the pace on the attack can cause real problems for a Bayern Munich defense that easily gets pushed and pulled out of position it's it could be a really good game to watch. And again, I don't want to overhype it because we overhyped the final maybe or maybe the final didn't live up to our expectations. But I would be very interested to see with Bayern pushing so high up the pitch and Palmeiras, their best performances came uh, against big sides at least when they smothered at one end and broke quickly on the other. And that's how you beat Bayern Munich at the moment this season or how you do well against them at least. Sure. Looking ahead... Ollie, and of course, nearer the time we'll go into this in far greater detail. But just looking ahead to the Copa Libertadores 2021, we've mentioned it throughout recent podcasts that it's very difficult to see beyond the Argentine and Brazilian domination. And I was just looking at the sides that have already qualified. Of course, the actual qualification process or the final stages of qualification process and the, and the final places in the tournament are still up for grabs and I know Brazil haven't finished their league season and that will dictate uh, who goes in from Brazil with Palmeiras clearly already there because they're champions it, it is hard to see anyone outside you know Boca River and the big Brazilians winning it yeah and you look at the Brazilian sides that are going to be going into it as well it's interesting Palmeiras are taking up a spot for the Libertadores already in the league they'll be through as reigning champions they're also in the Copa do Brasil final that gets a spot against Gremio, who are already taking a spot in the league as well. So Santos, at the moment, with the league, aren't going to make it. But they are. There's three teams. Uh, sorry, Serra, I believe it is. Corinthians and Santos, all on 45 points, and Red Bull Bragantino on 44 points, with a handful of games to go in eighth, ninth, tenth, eleventh. And I think because Gremio might get the Copa do Brazil slot and Palmeiras already through, eighth and ninth then might drop down to in the league positions because seven teams from the league go through from Brazil might drop but, down. Yeah, okay, interesting. 
And again, because obviously cause Santos at the moment are 10th of the division. And on when you look at it just at first, it's just the top six that will go through to the Libertadores. But because of the Copa de Okay, well, we await to see what happens with that one. But but Santos are on the edge anyway. Because Brazil will get eight and eight slots and they will have mm-hmm. the Palmeiras slot as well as the reigning champions. Yeah. So that in theory sends it down to seven slots. So the top six plus one more at least, maybe two because of the Copa do Brasil. Yeah. Which then takes us down to eighth and eighth and ninth, really, looking <laughs> yeah. at it, which is and- bonkers. It's it's crazy. That's half the league, mate. It's be half half well, the league. Especially when you then drop it down to, then you have the Copa Sudamericana qualifiers, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and then there is a gap of one irrelevant spot at sixteenth, and then the bottom four <laughs> go into the relegation competition with the Serie B sides. Yeah, what a league! If yeah. again, I don't know all of the permutations of that. That's just sure, how I'm looking sure. at it and seeing it, and how the numbers would tally up. But it also means that Santos are a goal di- a goal difference and one goal as well replaced between them and Corinthians from being back in the Libertadores again via that route, via the league campaign. So they could still be there. Yeah. And, um, but anyway, going back to yeah. my initial point, sorry, of Inter leading the league at the moment, Flamengo, Sao Paulo, who were disappointing, but hopefully will be will come good potentially next year. Atletico Mineiro, Palmeiras, Gremio, Fluminense as well, an iconic side in Brazil. There are some big names from Brazil going into it. So there's no reason why we wouldn't see some Brazilian dominance. And I have to say, you look at the Argentinian sides going into it. San Lorenzo, Racing, River Plate, Boca, four big names. But then Vélez Sarsfield, that is an upcoming side still. They were impressive in the Sudamericana at times, but that jump is very big. Defence at Eustitia, how does their football translate and what kind of squad is it going to be compared to the one that was successful on the continent this year? Argentina's juniors, I mean, it's kind of great that they're in the competition with the uh, obviously the ground being the Diego Armando Maradona Stadium, the inflatable Maradona Tunnel. It'd be great to see that in the Copa Libertadores, of course. There are some good sides in there. It just doesn't have the same weight necessarily, I think, as... Um, as the Brazilian sides. And then you get into, you know, Chile's still deciding at the moment. Uh, Ecuador is, is, is sorted. Barcelona, Liga de Quito, Independiente del Valle, Universidad Católica, four names that we know very well from this competition. Um, the big big Paraguayan sides are all there, aren't they? Cerro Porteño, Olimpia, Libertad, Guarani. Yeah. Sporting Cristal, who are in the Libertadores for the last two seasons that we've been covering the competition intently from peru still there universitario who are a big side and that's where the final was held last year at their ground from uh, from lima peru and then the other two sides i've never heard of in peru i will say that i'm currently doing some deep diving on the <laughs> on the peruvian side of next year's libertadores and um and the uruguayan sides as well they haven't been decided yet but it, sure. it, it looks like from what i've been able to gather that we're likely to see the likes of nacional Peñarol maybe Montevideo Wanderers I think I was looking at but anyway it's it's all up in the air still it, it should be as always a great tournament so you don't fancy Deportivo Lara of Venezuela to go all the way they're not somebody who I'm going to be putting too many pennies on mm. in my, I actually quite like the uh, Colombian outfits though this year that are going through America de Cali uh, I've seen in the Copa Sudamericana a couple of times and try and play quite fast football when I've watched them Santa Fe Junior who are an impressive side 
<laughs> Bless you, Mr. Wilson. Thank you. Apologies. Keep that in. Junior, that, um, <laughs> thanks. The, there's a lot of expectation in the last two seasons of Domi the Libertadores, and they haven't failed to match that expectation nor in the Sudamericana and Atletico Nacional who are a former winner of this competition of course as well so there's some big names from Colombian football coming through into this tournament I mean and but, it's all obviously going to end up with a Boca River final yeah if things play out that way we <laughs> could see possibly a, and we don't even know where the final is yet they're still competing no, over no, that Thank you so much, everyone, uh, for listening to Wilson and Windsor's Libertadores podcast throughout the duration of the tournament this year. It's been up and down, pretty bumpy, and there have been uh, pandemic pauses and plenty else. However, at the end of the day, the tournament is about winners. Palmeiras won it, and so I think it is therefore only right that we allow Christian, our resident Palmeiras supporter and at anything Palmeiras on Twitter, to give us his thoughts on the final. Um, Christian, thanks a lot, mate, for, for your contributions this year, as is the case for absolutely everyone who contributes, of course, to the Wilson and Windsor Libertadores podcast. Uh, thanks. I know we, we kind of pestered you after WhatsApp voice notes, but you've delivered emphatically. So, Christian, take it away, my friend. What an amazing final. And not in the sense of a beautiful game to watch. I think actually it was very uh, opposite to what most people expected. Uh, both Palmeiras and Santos are teams that normally play very offensively. Uh, and, and this game was so much uh, a chessboard, uh, only focusing on eliminating uh, the other side. And I uh, think that Abel executed this perfectly. Uh, Soteldo and Marinho didn't have any opportunity basically to 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 score yesterday, and and that was uh, that was part of the the game plan, and that was the most important piece of the game plan to stop these two really really good Santos players, and and Abel executed that perfectly, uh, and slowly slowly took control of the game. Uh, not creating many chances either, but but you know at least being slightly more offensive, and then that that amazing jackpot towards the end in the dying minutes of the game, uh, Horny once again decisive with the cross, and Breno Breno Lopez who arrived at Palmeiras just a few months ago uh, from the second division team uh, Juventude, and and just you know gets that perfect header in. And, uh, and uh, I mean, his first game, his first goal scored for Palmeiras was just less than 10 days ago. So, so that was just amazing that he could be the one to decide uh, and crown Palmeiras Masters of the Americas. This is such a, an amazing feeling. Um, I mean, three and a half months ago, uh, every Palmeiras fan just thought this season is over. There's nothing for Palmeiras to... To, to 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 try to reach you know we'll be we have bagged the Sao Paulo state championship at the beginning of the year and that's it okay let's focus uh, on on next season and and here we are 3 months later you know kings of the libertadores and we're going to the fifa world club uh, championship and we play uh, when we get back from qatar we'll play the brazil cup final against grêmio and we still have a shot, although remote, uh, to win the Brazilian league as well. So this is just amazing. And, and well, you can just stop the world uh, from rotating and I'll be happy because the Libertadores has been something we've been desiring for 
two decades now and, and it's ours. And it was, uh, as I said, it would be beautiful. And it wasn't a beautiful game, but it was fought hard, well played in the end and uh, so deserved. So uh, me and about 16 million Pomeranians are very, very happy at this moment.